Hello, welcome to Entrepreneurship at UBC's podcast, Evolution. I'm your host, MJ. Today we have Gordon Casey, founder and CEO of Brave Co-op. After a career in law and finance, Gordon moved to Vancouver, determined to use technology to reveal that help is always nearby as long as you can ask for it. Brave's technology connects people with community supporters when they're alone and at risk of an overdose. They just released their remote supervision app, Be Safe. Gordon, it's great to have you here to chat. Tell us more about when you started your own business and how Brave was born. Ended up starting my own business about uh, well, 2004, which is 16 years ago now, in Curacao, which is an island in the Caribbean. So I was a uh, building a business out there as a legal consultant uh, in the hedge fund and online gaming industries. Uh, so that was that was fun to build a business, and I really enjoyed that, but obviously wasn't getting much satisfaction from the, uh, the heart side of things. And around 2010, started looking at how I could leave that and do work that was more meaningful. And Vancouver was very attractive for a lot of reasons, and not least because I'd read about Insight, the supervised consumption space, around the time of the Olympics here, the Winter Olympics. And it had sounded like something that was so, just so kind. So um, the, the phrase I use now is so radically kind. It felt like a place where radical things could happen for, for people that often get overlooked. And so, so we moved here in 2016, and uh, I started asking around, and I, I thought coming into it that you know, people are overdosing and they need naloxone, so if we can get the naloxone to them faster, that would probably improve the number of people who don't die of accidental overdose. And I got great feedback from the community that, yeah, that was something that was needed and people would use it, so I built a thing with, with some some developers that came on board and it didn't get used it's the it's the long and short of it um i still think there's a need for that in different communities but not here in vancouver necessarily but in the course of that exploration which was sort of six months of meeting with hundreds of people here in vancouver and chatting with folks elsewhere um i came to understand more fully that the challenge really was people who are using drugs alone and that if you're alone then nobody's going to see you overdose Tell me more about how the Be Safe app works. How does it prevent an overdose? Right. So when you call and we we have a discussion about a bunch of things, but assuming that you were to overdose, uh, I push a button on my end that says that you've become unresponsive. You you get something flashing on your side saying that I think that you're in trouble. Um, and if you don't deny that, if you don't say I'm actually fine, then within 15 seconds, your location is revealed to me. And then I then I call nine one one, and I provide them the information. You also can give me other information, such as you know, what apartment number you're in, because it's a GPS based location. So on the phone, I would have asked you to check that the address is correct, and um, to enter the apartment number. And you can also give us a you know the details of somebody else you'd like us to call, either instead of or as well as EMS. I'm curious to know more about the model that Brave was based upon. The model of supervised consumption which is um, what was pioneered here in Vancouver. Um, but the model that was pioneered by Sarah Bly that the Overdose Prevention Society in downtown Vancouver, sort of in a tent in the middle of winter, 
uh, which she just set it up because there were too many people dying. Uh, that that model, just opening, creating a space in our sense of virtual space for people to just come, and you're really trying to do that one thing, which is to keep them alive. We're definitely not trying to get people into recovery, um, but we're also not trying to be more than that. Uh, we're not trying to get them access to other forms of treatment or social services. We're trying to focus on this one challenge, this one problem, with the understanding that if, if we can start to, to fix some of that, then maybe we can start to introduce those other things too. But very much about being laser focused on the one impact that we think is achievable and then hoping to, to grow from there. It's amazing to hear more about the work that has been done in Vancouver before and how you are focusing on one part of the support system and really getting it right before trying to expand. The work that you do at Brave is so team and community oriented. Could you tell us more about your multi-stakeholder and cooperative approach? Co-ops are this amazing thing that have been around for well over 100 years. They have almost always had social justice elements tied into them. They have very frequently been used by people that are underserved and underprivileged and um, maltreated, to to be honest, and have core principles. There, there are like specific principles of cooperativism, but they require your know, cooperation amongst co-ops. They require equality and equity within the membership. One of the innovations recently in the cooperativism in the co-op world is to allow external investors to participate as well. So the thinking of the platform co-op movement is to allow people to invest um, in the co-op, but without giving them all of the power. So we have, and, and we're just one example, and there's many, many ways you can create this, but for Brave, the co-op members can be either anyone who uses the technology. So just by downloading the app or using our buttons or the sensors, you are entitled to become a member of the co-op. Or you can be somebody who works for Brave. So and we'd call that a worker member or labor member. Or you can be somebody who invests in the co-op. And the idea there is that everybody's contributing in some way. So end users are contributing by making the network more strong, by validating the, the tool in terms of using it. Uh, obviously, people who work for Brave are, val are are contributing with their time and, and their professional excellence and expertise and so on. And then people with money are contributing their money. But everybody gets one vote. So I have one vote at Brave um, and an end user who downloads the app today and then joins the co-op has one vote as well. What are some of the challenges people who are at risk of overdosing facing right now in light of the current COVID-19 climate? So the... The main ways in which it's impacted it is the same as how other health conditions have been impacted by coronavirus, by massively reducing the access to healthcare services and other primary care services due to social distancing measures and, and gathering, trying to restrict the amount of people gathering in spaces. That means that people don't have access to supervised consumption services. It means they don't have access to needle exchanges. Um, And we know across the board around the world, uh, calls to emergency services have gone down by a huge amount. So people just aren't reaching out out of an overabundance of caution, I suppose, both for themselves and for the healthcare system. Um, 
which was not the intention, I think, of, of trying to flatten the curve. We didn't want people to reach out, to not reach out because they think they're having a heart attack. Uh, but that, that is what's happening. And I think the same is happening for folks who, who are at risk of overdose. At, at moments when they might have otherwise reached out for some kind of assistance, when they feel that they're struggling or spiraling, they're not doing that because they've everyone's being told to isolate, being told to stay at home, being told to not sort of bother people because we're dealing with this other crisis. And the result has been that overdoses have spiked um, tremendously. We we know that that's happening here, and we're hearing conflicting reports from other parts of North America, but we also know that Vancouver has, or BC, has its finger on the pulse and has much more access to real-time alerts than a lot of other places in North America. The second way in which coronavirus has affected the the situation here is um, it's it's made the drug supply more dangerous. So because supply chains are being disrupted so massively, that means that the regular way in which admittedly illicit substances come into the market here has been disrupted and that always ends up making it more dangerous so the same thing happens when a huge bust is made when a huge amount of illicit drugs is seized it will disrupt to a greater or lesser extent the the illicit drug supply which usually makes it more dangerous wow so now you've spoken to the challenges that people at risk of an overdose are facing what impact did COVID 19 have on brave I mean, two things happened when, when coronavirus was, was coming. The first thing was we opened up our, our mobile app publicly in, in March or the end of March, which was a good few months ahead of when we were intending to do it. And we've been working with communities to have give them access to the app on a sort of one-to-many basis, but hadn't started talking about it publicly. It was still available. It's been available publicly for over a year, but we weren't talking about it publicly. It felt like... We had a tool in our back closet that was useful to some people and that we were holding on to it and hiding it when the more the more respectful thing and more responsible thing to do would be to put it out into the world and let people use it however they saw fit. So that was the one big change. The other thing was that we uh, were invited by one of our one of our partners to put our buttons into quarantine spaces. So this is an organization that's running some of the hotels that are being made available for people from the community um, in Vancouver who are who test positive or they think they might be positive and they're being quarantined for a period of time while they recover. And so those places have our buttons in them, which means that if any of them are using illicit substances in those rooms, they can push the button and somebody will come and check on them in a minute or two to make sure that nothing went wrong. So, in order to access the app, callers need a smartphone and access to an internet connection. How have you mitigated these requirements given that some of the people who need access to these types of support don't have a smartphone or internet connection? Yeah, the sad reality is this is the the world that we live in and it's it's great to see the world in general increasingly acknowledge that access to the internet is a fundamental right or organizations or more likely governments need to be doing more to ensure that everybody has access to it given the essential services that now only appear online etc and, and in the light of covid how some of those essential services at least for this period of time are also only accessible by online tools there's great initiatives happening now with more phones being given out with public access wi-fi being made available more broadly um, but there's, there's always going to be people that don't have access to it. Um, 
the two ways in which we sort of tried to mitigate against this and saw this as a huge challenge that we wanted to try and address were were what resulted in the buttons and our sensors being created. So we know that most folks in supportive housing do not have have smartphones. Um, it also doesn't seem like a, the smart way for them to go about getting help if you're in a building like that, just using a phone, whereas a fixed button stuck on your wall that you can push, that you know it's there whenever you're in that room, does seem to make more sense. Um, it's also very low cost for the, the organizations. It's a couple of thousand dollars to get the entire system set up in your, in your building. Um, that seemed like one way to mitigate against it for that particular group of people. Uh, we also know that a lot of people overdose in washrooms, in publicly accessible washrooms, and possibly as many as uh, one, one or three, one to three people per day, we think are dying across North America in publicly accessible washrooms. So having a cheap system that can just be stuck on the roof of a, of a washroom, alert somebody nearby that they, someone has stopped moving, was also a way in which we we thought we could meet that need because primarily folks using washrooms are not people who have um, access to other forms of support so they probably also don't have a phone. It's a big challenge and it's interesting to see other alternatives such as the buttons that you mentioned. Now for our audience what are some of the ways people can get involved and support? At the moment we we're receiving a lot of applications for people to be supporters on the on the app. And the way that works is you would be someone who answers the call when someone who's using is, is looking to be supported. And 90% of the folks who are supporters now have lived experience with drug use. Um, most of them also have lived experience or professional experience with monitoring folks who are using a one-to-one or at overdose prevention sites. Uh, we are receiving calls from folks who have less of that experience, um, but who want to help, which is really beautiful and, and admirable. And we're trying to build out training processes for them so that they can they can get on board. And it's things like understanding harm reduction, um, but as well as understanding active listening or nonviolent communication, tools like that to ensure you have a, a framework for, for working with people through these things. The thing that's coming in the future is a way for people to just sort of anybody on the street to be available to respond to an overdose if that's happening. And this is like the original idea, right? The original idea of if there's an overdose happening and you're nearby and either you have training or you have naloxone or even just to go there and be the person who, who stays with that, that person while professional help comes. And that would be the way that I think the, the broader public could get involved and as a, at a very sort of low barrier level. Anybody could really join, join that, nearly anybody. But other than that, honestly, spreading the word is probably the most important thing at this point in time. Uh, folks who who use are not necessarily people that everybody knows is using. And knowing that there's a tool like this, it's hard to get the word out to everybody because really everybody needs to know that it's out there. And it's really a case of sort of one by one. Folks are going to join. They're going to test it. What we get these days on the on the mobile app is a lot of people testing it just calling and saying like, hey, it's, okay, somebody answered the phone and then they, they hang up or they, they say thanks and they hang up, they ask questions and so on. Um, so learning to trust us as the humans on the other end and learning to trust the system technologically that it's not tracking you, uh, it's not taking down your location, all the things which we've taken a lot of time to build into it to make sure that we don't do those things and we try to be as transparent as possible about 
how we don't do those things. Yeah, trust is so important in this kind of work. And it seems to be the base of the Brave and the Be Safe app platform. So I want to congratulate you, your team, and the community for the amazing work that you're all doing. And I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights with us. It's been great. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy.